From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationship with it. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. Well, these days, nature, almost everywhere, survives on human terms. The distinction between what is natural and what is human-made, which has informed conservation for centuries, has become blurred. When scientists can reshape genes more or less at will, what does it mean to conserve nature? The tools of synthetic biology are changing the way we answer that question. Gene editing technology is already transforming the agriculture and biotechnology industries. What happens if synthetic biology is also used in conservation to control invasive species, fight wildlife disease, or even bring extinct species back from the dead? Yes, what is natural and what is artificial in the era of the Anthropocene? This is the core question addressed by Kent Redford and William Adams in their book, Strange Natures, Conservation in the Era of Synthetic Biology. Kent Redford will join us in the first part of the show. Then, in the second part of the show, we'll speak with Hugh Bigger and Mark Commandator from the California Division of Wildlife Services. State and federal biologists and engineers, in partnership with the Winamem Wintu tribe, have begun testing an experimental system in California's Shasta Reservoir that could help collect young salmon from the McLeod River in future years. The Juvenile Salmonid Collection System, a pilot project three years in the making, is part of a long-term effort to help fish better survive California's hotter, drier future and more extreme droughts. We'll talk about that in the second part of the show. Environmental awareness and education. That's what This Green Earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. I'm Nell Larson. And joining us in the first part of the show is Kent Redford. He is the co-author of the book, Strange Nature's Conservation in the Era of Synthetic Biology. Kent, thank you so much for joining Nell and myself this morning on This Green Earth. It's a pleasure. Thank you for including me. All right. Well, fascinating book, really fascinating topic. Lots of questions Nell and I have. So, But we thought we'd start with some kind of history. We always like to get some background, uh, and in this case, give us a little definition of what synthetic biology is. Certainly, synthetic biology has a variety of different definitions, but basically it is a set of techniques, technologies, that allow the very precise and purposeful changes to uh, DNA in living organisms in order to achieve a desired outcome specified by humans. Okay, and so how long have we been employing synthetic, quote-unquote, synthetic biology like this, uh, say, within, say, plants and animals? Uh, well, the earliest work was done in microorganisms, and it took a while to be able to use some of the technologies in, in uh, more complex living organisms. But... It's been a gradual change. There is not a one given point at which it was begun. So the earlier earlier technologies would be decades ago, but the newest versions, which are constantly evolving, really are within the last 10 to 15 years. Okay, 10, so, so this century uh, is, is the... Is the, the yes, yes, in terms of the kinds of things that we're talking about, this century is a convenient marker. Okay, so 
maybe then an example of what is not synthetic biology as I'm I kind of think of uh, the 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 adaptation let's say that uh, the work that say Norman Borlaug did decades and decades go back in the 50s or so to modify well wheat and rice crops to effectively grow taller faster etc that green revolution that that is a different type of uh, biological modification would you say Yes, yes, it is. So selective breeding, uh, which has its antecedents as soon as humans started to try to colonize, uh, domesticate plants or animals, right. is has its sort of most advanced version in, in the technologies that Borlaug and the Green Revolution used. In those cases, it was largely thinking of DNA, the genomes of these plants, as a black box. Mm. So you cross a lot of different plants, and then you'd find ones that had the characteristics you liked. You bred them. You crossed those again until you got the, the dwarf or the, uh, or the drought tolerant or the higher yield plants. Whereas with synthetic biology, you are looking for very specific gene-related traits and then going in with a set of these technologies and modifying at the at the genome at the gene level uh, in order to try to get the trait that you are, are desirous of. One area where we hear a lot about genetically modified organisms is in agriculture. We hear about GMOs in food, and we see we see foods labeled like "no GMOs on this," you know, on this food or in this package. Is 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 that technology considered synthetic biology? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you're both you're both probing me about the limits of the definition of the term, <laughs> and I purposefully said that it's. There's a lot of uh, differences in the way people define it. So basically, the GMOs that most of us, well, those of us who are my age there, um, were raised on learning about had to do with introduction of genetic material from a different organism into the food plant uh, in order to try to get a desired outcome. And, and, and that is the sort of, that is why people call these things frankenfoods, um, of course, referring to Frankenstein crossed with food, which is a very odd notion. And uh, whereas <laughs> the synthetic biology tools are very precise and frequently don't involve changing or bringing in uh, genetic material from other organisms, but rather changing the genetic sequence of the organism itself. All right, at the risk of annoying you, Kat. I'm going <laughs> to ask you one more. I, I, the, the example of uh, uh, genetically modifying uh, salmon. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Franken, well, there, that, that term, frankenfish, right? Uh, yes. Modifying the genes of the salmon. So, but the, modifying them, introducing, I believe they introduced the gene of another fish yes, into the pounds. salmon, a cod or so, so that it grew faster quicker yes. right okay yes. all right correct so that is and that that uh, product is as far as i know is not available commercially in the u.s but it is in canada as far as i know um and so that is an example of the older technology and one of the reasons that it has taken so long to approach market sales um has to do with the regulatory uh requirements so so now I would imagine that those people who would want to produce that fish would be using very different technologies in order to do that.
Okay, so now that All we've right. now that we've badgered you about what uh, synthetic badgering, I like that. <laughs> Thank you. That's what we do every week, okay, Tuesday good. morning. <laughs> okay, so we have that we have an idea of what synthetic biology is, and yeah. of course, we're going to get to some of these questions around should should we use it in nature, as we kind of introduced yeah. in the intro. Um, but to help us all understand, you know, how it might be applied, will you give us an example or two of potential applications um, in nature? So first, it, it, it's important to point out that anybody who has had a vaccine uh, of Pfizer or mm -hmm. Moderna, I believe, certainly Pfizer, it, it has introduced into his or her own body a, a um, synthetic biology product. Mm -hmm. So they are, they have moved very rapidly in the human medical um, technology applications. But you're asking about the conservation ones. And to my knowledge, there has not been a field release of any organism uh, for conservation purposes that is a product of synthetic biology. Now, I stress the conservation purposes because there have been some insects for uh, in the case of mosquitoes for, for human disease and in the case of crop pests, there have been some field releases, um, but the conservation ones are still, as far as I know to date, um, have, not been, have not been tried. One of those that is farthest along uh, is, a, is the result of a consortium between a number of universities in Australia, New Zealand, and the US and they are working on trying to um, develop, modify a mouse of the house mouse variety, uh, which is Asian European in its origin, but has been introduced very widely onto oceanic islands, as many people may know. Mm. And these mice are responsible for a lot of death of seabirds mm. nesting on these islands. And this, uh, this effort to which I'm referring is trying to make a genetically modified mouse that if it if the modification is successful when the mice breed they would produce only offspring of one sex meaning that eventually that island population would go extinct because there would be no other sex um, to reproduce wow okay Sounds like a great yeah. idea. Kat. It does. Um, on the you know what what is the what is the potential pushback or say ripple effects of such a yeah. project? So this is a project which is proposing to use something that is called gene drive, mm. and it's a simply put, it is a way of changing the if I'm allowed to use this phrase, natural rules of sexual reproduction where there is half of a, one of the genes comes from a mother and one of the gene comes from a father. And so you have this resorting of the genetic material. In a gene drive, you are, the reason it's called a drive is you are driving a given modification that happens irrespective of this usual rule of resorting. And it's a naturally occurring phenomenon that particularly is found in insects and they're trying to harness it to use in this case in mice it's also being uh, harnessed to use uh, for malaria malarial mosquitoes but mm. let's return to the mice 
So there are a variety of concerns, some of which are based on a values uh, position that humans have no right to be making these kinds of changes. Mm. And there's another school of concern, which is that if these mice, genetically modified mice, were to get off the island and be um, transported uh, on a on a pallet, let's say, of, of luggage or bananas or something, and were to return to its native range, say, Spain or, or Central Europe, that you might then endanger that Mus musculus, which is the genus and species of the house mouse, you might put in danger those mice, which we don't want to put in danger because they are there where that's where they belong and they're doing their ecosystem house mouse thing there. We only want to get rid of them where we don't want them, not where we where, where they're naturally occurring. And so that's another uh, school of concern about this. We're speaking with Kent Redford. He's a conservation scientist and co-author of the book along with William Adams uh, titled Strange Natures, Conservation in the Era of Synthetic Biology. So, okay, so that's, a, that's an interesting uh, example of tr the attempts to manage an otherwise very invasive and destructive species. And you can, like you, I think you alluded to, work in the area, similar work in the area of controlling mosquitoes. I know down in uh, Monroe County, Florida, in the Keys, there were efforts yep. to release uh, uh, certain types of mosquitoes, I think, that were uh, genetically modified mosquitoes to control those populations and the, and the harm they would do with respect to public health or so. And that got right. a lot of pushback, for this, right. I believe, for the same reasons you cite with respect to the house mouse, correct? That's right. There are a set of people who, who just think that humans have no right to be messing at the level of the genome. Mm. And it's a very interesting argument. And, and I have had conversations with a number of people who hold this position and have come to believe, and we lay out in, in the book Strange Natures, that there is a very um, interesting transposition of the argument about wilderness to the genetic level mm. so that people who advocate for wilderness believe that we should have parts of the earth where human impact is is minimal if not nil and and that is an argument that uh, flies in the face of the absolute ubiquitous universal impact, for example, of climate change and many other things, such that those areas are really probably impossible to find if you use a strict definition. And what seems to be going on is that this same argument has been, as I said, transposed to the genetic level. And people feel that humans should not be messing with genes. I mean, I've had somebody who said that to me. Hmm. Which is a, which is really interesting, and it also flies in the face of all the evidence because any time that humans are affecting a species, we are doing so through affecting their genetic material. So just as the ubiquity of climate change is there, the ubiquity of human impact on the genomes of otherwise wild species is probably extremely widely um, encountered. So even, even with respect to pests 
you know, disease-carrying vectors, there is a population, there is a group of people who believe that, well, that's, that's the way nature works. We need to adapt. Of course, one of our adaptations to invasive pests like that is to spray chemicals to kill Correct. them. That's a Correct. management, you know, effort that's been going on for, you know, a hundred and some years. Um, so I, I, yeah, I have, uh, I have some trouble getting my head around really invasive, harmful species to public health, like mosquitoes and and rats and other. Uh, disease-carrying vectors and vermin like that. Well, and in fact, disease organisms themselves. Yeah. Um, because all of this also right. takes place at a microorganism level as well. So I, I would love to dive a little deeper. You mentioned, you know, obviously humans are impacting everywhere on the earth through climate change and how that changes our environments. Are there um, synthetic biology applications that could hypothetically help, you know, plant or animal species adapt or survive different different conditions um, yes. in a new climate. Yes, there are. And I, uh, uh, before I, I answer the question directly, I will say that this field of synthetic biology has created what one author has called the economy of promises and perils. Hmm. So there is a lot of hype that goes on. Um, as people try to get publicity and try to get money and try to commercialize, et cetera. And likewise, the people who are against all of this are, are using a lot of the uh, extreme language of peril. So these examples that I'm going to give are ones that are really still in a, in a kind of proof of concept phase. Okay. Um, and they're going to have to get the permission of civil society wherever they're introduced in order to be allowed to happen. So with that by way of a, an introduction, the, th the one, the, the, the place where I think it's most exciting and important has to do with coral reefs. Mm. Uh, cor reef building corals uh, and the reefs they build are extremely important for biodiversity. That is the thousands and tens of thousands of species that, that require a reef in order to live. Um, but also for our humans in terms of particularly uh, small-scale fisheries, mm. as well as the money that comes, the economic money that comes from ecotourism, et cetera. And as I'm sure you and your listeners know, coral reefs are in very bad shape in much of the world through a combination of acidification of ocean waters and also warming of the ocean waters. So there are a set of researchers working principally in Australia and in the in Hawaii and in the Red Sea, who have been trying and working in laboratory settings to modify the genomes of corals to make them more resistant to warming waters. And there is another school of work which is modifying the, the they're called zooxanthellae, the organisms that live inside the coral that actually create the colors of the coral reefs. And they're the ones that photosynthesize and help feed the corals itself. So there's also work to modify those microorganisms to allow them to survive and not be expelled. Uh, in That's what caused coral bleaching is the expelling of these microorganisms. So these two strands of work, both on the corals itself and on their, on the microorganisms that, that they require in order to thrive and see whether or not we can 
basically create versions of these species which will tolerate higher acid levels in the ocean and warmer waters. Okay, I'll I'll go there. Again, sounds like a great, sounds great idea. What's yeah. what's the downside? Well, so again, you know, there's the same um, the same objection that I to which I made reference before, which is that we sh have no right to be doing that. Right. Um, and one of the additional versions of that argument has to do with the moral hazard argument, which which says that if we have ways of fixing problems, then we won't try and stop the problems themselves. In other words, if we felt that we can engineer corals so they would resist uh, uh, warming oceans, then we would stop worrying about warming oceans. That's the moral hazard. Okay. And, mm. You know, you have to be thinking seriously about that in the way people are going to respond. Um, then the argument about the wilderness of the genome and then, of course, there is the practical argument of how the heck, if you were able to do this, could you ever make it happen on a large enough scale mm -hmm. to actually produce that kind of, of an impact? Uh, the Australians are moving much faster in this arena, both in terms of the technology, but also in doing some really interesting public polling on this topic and, and inquiring what the citizenry would think well before it's possible in order to find out what the kind of social climate is if these technologies do end up being uh, applicable. Okay, so uh, just a, a few more minutes. How far along uh, is these pilot projects, coral reef projects going? What, what, what successes have they had or challenges? Oh, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not, I, I am only secondarily aware of progress that is through the publishing that these people are doing. Yeah. So what is happening is in many places is some technologies are being moved straight to commercialization or at least getting patents for them before they're getting kind of released into the scientific literature. So, um, so I don't I don't know the answer except I know it's extremely active work that's being done in labs um, and that includes in seawater tanks that hold corals where this work is going on. There's a there's a case closer to home mm. um, for you which is work that's being done on poplar the trees um, to create a genetically modified poplar that grows faster and sequesters carbon much faster than than the natural um, poplar mm -hmm. and the makers of this the creators of this uh, make the argument that this is a more efficient way and quote natural way of removing carbon from the atmosphere um, than than naturally occurring trees or even technologies such as some people have suggested uh, that's interesting because uh, one of my last questions was about uh, the the forest out here which are in a way yeah. are our coral reefs you know yeah, our, yeah, yeah. our forests uh and the challenges many of our forests face in a in a drier and warmer world say with respect to bark beetles and the damage exactly that bark the beetle. Yep. Uh, is there is it possible to employ synthetic biology either to the tree or to the beetle itself to to benefit the forest yeah Sure. No, that and that's exactly the example I had in mind. 
I want to take a brief digression and say that that one of the places that is most advanced in terms of conservation applications is on the eastern east coast of North America, where there are active, where they're, they're, they've actually applied to the U.S. Department of Agriculture to get permission to plant Native American chestnut trees, which are currently virtually extinct. It used to be the most common tree in the eastern forests yeah. because of a chestnut blight. And they have developed a tree which is resistant to the blight and are seeking this permission to be able to outplant it with the potential, and I stress potential, of if people are wanting to plant them, of bringing back an iconic tree, the chestnuts roasting on an open fire of the holiday season was an American chestnut. Um, right. So back to your question, the, the target would most likely be the beetle itself, because as far as I understand, the warming climate is allowing the beetles to go through multiple broods within the coniferous trees. Right. And, and that one brood is something that a tree can resist, but two or three is what's killing them. So given the amount of work that's been done on crop pests, particularly beetles, uh, by people who deploy synthetic biology technologies, you might imagine, I mean, because I don't know this, but you know, might imagine that that would be a target for manipulation. And if you could develop such a beetle, then of course you'd have to seek the, the permission of both the regulatory agencies, but particularly the stakeholders who use the forest and care about the forest um, in order to, in, before anything like that could ever be considered for adoption. It's fascinating because these potential, I guess, quote unquote solutions are, they're so tempting and they're so attractive to solve these yeah. problems. But there's the big question mark of what is the larger ecological impact that maybe is yeah, unintended, like say, the you collateral know. Mm -hmm. knock on effects. And right. then like you could say, the moral uh, issues mm -hmm. associated with exactly. this. When I started getting into this topic and we had a meeting in the UK bringing together synthetic biology developers and the conservation community, I received an email from somebody who said, you'll never read this and I doubt you'll ever respond to it, but what is wrong with you? Are you a drug addict? <laughs> Do you believe that the problems that have been caused by technologies can be solved by technologies? <laughs> That is the logic of a fully addicted drug user. Oh. And, and I read that email because that's, that's a very good question. And we have to ask that of ourselves, not only for synthetic biology technologies, but for artificial intelligence and all of the other range of things that are currently being considered. And, and you know, I, I say yes, and let's <laughs> think about it. And yeah. that's where I am on I, that position. And I agree. And yeah. I'm so glad you brought up the American chestnut, only from a yes. personal point of view, because Nell and I are both back, uh, from back east, New, oh, New, New York, and I'm from New Jersey. And I grew up in the 60s and 70s in a neighborhood full of chestnuts. Oh, and yeah. nothing, they were, there was no better sound than this, the, the chestnut leaves in the fall, <laughs> crunching yeah. beneath my feet. Yes. The American child. For nostalgic reasons yes. alone. <laughs> well, watch the news because the USDA is saying they're probably going to release their decision in the spring. And there's going to be a lot of activity around this, both by people who are 
very much in favor and by people who really don't like it. So, well, you know what, Ken, if we'll watch that. And when we see that yeah. news come out, we'll have you back. It's to a, talk it's about a it. fascinating oh, topic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Kent Redford, conservation scientist and author, co-author of the book, Strange Natures, Conservation in the Era of Synthetic Biology. Thank you so much for letting Nell and I uh, badger you this morning. <laughs> we hope to do that again. My great again. pleasure. Thank All you right. again. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll be speaking with Hugh Bigger and Mark Comantador with the California Division of Wildlife Services about uh, a project they're working on to save salmon. In the face of climate change. This, it, this conversation is sounding similar. This, uh, it's this green earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And uh, joining us now for the second part of the show are Hugh Bigger and Mark Commandator from the California Division of Wildlife Services. Uh, here to talk with us about a tool they're testing out to help salmon weather, weather climate change here. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having us. So it's our pleasure to be here. Well, we're happy to have you both uh, on the air with us. And, um, you know, we want to kind of set the scene here. Um, we know that there have been some real challenges for salmon um, due to dams, due to climate change. Set the scene for us in your particular watershed. And what challenges are the salmon they're facing? Well, um, we're, we're, our project is a pilot project, um, and uh, we have a great partnership, so that's helped us. But uh, the watershed that we're talking about is the McLeod River watershed. It's the historic grounds of the winter run salmon and their Chinook salmon. And um, the partnership is with the Winnemawintu tribe. California uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife, National Marine Fisheries Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. Uh, Bureau of Reclamation. And um, this partnership has been working on a project to bring back winter run salmon to historic grounds in the McLeod River. Mm. And um, we're testing a pilot project that will collect juvenile fish and bring them back over Shasta Dam. And so share with us, you mentioned the Shasta Dam, share with us the the barriers they're facing. You know, you say bring back the winter run. So give us that picture of kind of what what has prevented that and how long ago did that stop? Sure, Uh, in in 1945, they finished Shasta Dam. So it blocked uh, fish from making basically a 300 mile journey from the Pacific Ocean all the way up to the McLeod River. Uh, They face that, that's the biggest barrier they face right now. Um, They also face that coming back down when the juvenile fish come back down. So it's, it's, it's been since 1945 that they haven't been able to get up to uh, colder water. And you had mentioned climate change earlier. Below the dam, the water's warm, so it stresses fish out. Uh, We have a cold water pool that we generate from Shasta Dam to protect for fish, and and that helps. But to be resilient for climate change in the future, we need to look at ways of getting fish back up into the historic uh, spawning areas. 
It's and behind Shasta Dam is where that is. Okay, okay. It's incredible that this that these fish have been hanging on since 1945 in these in these subpar conditions, um, and now there's maybe some some potential um, for improvement uh, right. on the way. G- give us a picture. What what is this mechanism that would help collect these salmon? So, th- this system we call it the the juvenile salmon collection system. It is a system that contains a debris boom to block trees and other debris from coming into it. It has a a larger boom that grow, goes across uh, and, and spans the McLeod arm of Lake Shasta. And then behind it, there's an, a secondary uh, boom that keeps cold water above. So we call it the temperature curtain. So the temperature curtain is is keeping cold water above and away from the warmer lake water. So it attracts this fish into a small trap. For, and these are very small fish, uh, less than three inches that we would be collecting. Okay. We're not testing with fish this year. So that is basically the design. And it spans uh, about 200 feet across the Shasta Lake arm. And it's, it's a it's a relatively portable system in that it's not permanent. It needs to move around with the fluctuating uh, lake levels. And we're in a drought this year, so it's very low and it's very close to the mouth of the McLeod River. Wow. So the the idea is that this colder water then provides essentially like almost like bait or an attractant right, to get these juvenile exactly. fish in there? Exactly. Um, and, you know... It, with the warmer water in the lake, it brings in predatory fish. There's a spotted bass uh, and other fish that are in Shasta Lake. And uh, we want to try to attract and keep away the predators and, and bring in and collect the fish safely so we can get as many as possible. Okay, so once the, the juveniles are collected, where do they go? We move them back around the dam. Um, and, and we let them go near Redding, California, and they're on their way again. Um, you know, everybody knows salmon are pretty prolific when they spawn. There are many eggs, uh, and they do that to produce as many fish as possible to get back at least two uh, of the adults the next year. And in a good year, if there's more food and better ocean conditions, and it's easier to get in and out than maybe four fish come back. So we keep on hope. The hope is that if we develop the system, we can get fish above Shasta Dam and have and build some resiliency in our portfolio of fish in California. Um, we we have fish below the dam. Now, getting a population above the dam would provide us some resilience uh, during times of drought and uh, climate change as well. So would the fish be moved essentially twice a year? Like, would you have to move them above the dam and then back down below the dam in order to get back to right the Right now, that's a great point and, and, and a great comment. Yes, um, okay. eventually we would. But right now, we're spawning fish out at the, um, at the Livingston Stone Hatchery, which is a, uh, a conservation hatchery for winter run. So we spawn them out, and that's below Shasta Dam. So we collect the fish, 
and then we spawn them out and then we bring the juvenile fish up above and that's in theory that's how that would work okay uh, okay so the dam is basically in the way obviously in the absence of a dam we wouldn't be even having this conversation <laughs> i suppose um and there's no classic or simple like fish ladders or ways for for fish to get a, around either up over this dam or or down this dam is it's this very large dam 600 foot dam and and it's it's not been tried before to get fish over a 600 foot dam um with any success no yeah. uh there are projects uh pelton round butte reservoir in oregon is uh has a long fish ladder but not quite as high mm. so there there's some precedents out there to try a fish ladder um to get adult fish over where they would go and volitionally pick the uh, rivers and streams that they would go to. Um, that's not something we're working on right now, but but there are potential models out there to consider. But again, even if they were able to get go up a fish ladder, they would be they'd go into Shasta Lake. And you say Shasta Lake yeah, is yes. fraught with problems, including warmer water and predators. So the, yes. the lake is not a great place for them to be to begin with. No, it's not. It's not their natural habitat right. exactly. But um, it moving the adults are, uh, we think, if, if you were able to move the adults, the signature of the water, whether it's from the upper Sacramento River, the McLeod River, or the Pitt River, those are the three big arms that uh, fill Lake Shasta. That water is the same signal water that goes through Shasta Dam, and they would be essentially following that water to their natal grounds. That's, in, in theory, that would work. Um, so, so, I, so the same water essentially is what they would be smelling tasting and um looking for that signal okay that's that's super interesting right. you use this phrase signal water and chris and i looked at each other like what does this mean wow. this is interesting so it's they're able to sense based on various markers in the water yes yes there's there's various markers in the water and environmental conditions so when they come they come into the from the ocean the adults and they go up to the hatchery. That hatchery water, whether it's used at Livingston Stone or comes through the dam on the main stem of the Sacramento River, has the same signal of water when they go above the dam. So the juvenile fish that would be um, spawned out in a in the McLeod River essentially would be seeing the same water all the way down in that 300 mile. Um, it, river journey that they would make back to the ocean that's it uh, fascinating that's have scientists that, kind of that's broken down that the sound, chemistry of that what what is it that they're sensing they're they're sensing the signal that's been imprinted on them from when they were hatched out so the hatchery has that same water it mm. comes through the dam and and it's used at the livingston stone hatchery so they know that signal. Now, it's a combination of three rivers, yes, but essentially it is the same water that comes through there. They all connected 
at a confluence before Shasta Dam was in there. So that confluence eventually puts them in the main stem, in theory, which is below the dam now because it's buried by Lake Shasta. But they all came together through that and went out. Hey, uh, on, a, on a larger, more general discussion, t- tell us what happened uh, when the salmon go down river, juveniles, they're out in the ocean. What are they doing out there and how long? One to three years, they're out in the ocean. They're feeding and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, the Chinook salmon that we're talking about, the winter run, mm. um, and and all Chinook salmon in general are the biggest fish. So they're they're eating the biggest salmon, excuse me, um, and they're they're feeding on other fish. They're feeding on uh, crustaceans. A lot of bountiful food in a good year each year that goes by in those one to three years they're getting bigger and bigger 50 sometimes 70 pounds uh very large king or chinook salmon that are out there those fish come back in one within one to three years and they make their journey Uh, we have four runs of salmon in california we have a fall run Hmm. we have a winter run winter run that we're talking about for this pilot study. We have a late fall run and we have a spring run. Their names of the runs are identified roughly when they come into the system as adults. Um, So these ocean-derived nutrients that they're collecting are brought back inland and they help the river, really. Uh, They give an abundance of food and fertilizer, essentially, for a, a whole ecosystem that evolved around them. I, I imagine that they're also eaten by other predators and then... Yes. All part of the food food chain. Yes. Orcas are part of the equation mm-hmm. as well. Or, or, orcas are abundant when salmon are abundant. Um, there's... Yeah, exactly. All part of the food chain. There are, there's a whole ecosystem connected to each step of the way that the salmon move through. So in addition to dams... Um, warmer water uh are they facing challenges and this might be a a little off topic but are they facing challenges while out in the ocean from human caused issues well you know you you could talk talk about overfishing and everything else but the real challenge now is climate change Mm. they're moving around there's different food sources those food sources move they exploit um, different food sources, and then they're adapting. And that's the biggest challenge. That's what we think is chipping away as well at the numbers of fish. So so you have that going on in the ocean. And then you have a modified system inland where um, I think if you read accounts about salmon in California in uh, right around 18, uh, excuse me, uh, 1918, we started to see a decline in salmon. This is before some of the big dam, dams were put in hmm. because we started to manage and change the way we looked at water. So 80% of their habitat was lost by 1918. And then now we think there's about 48% of their habitat left. And it's mostly below dams that are about at 1,000 feet in elevation. Okay. And getting fish behind those dams into colder water is key for climate change and for reproduction. We do have hatcheries that are 
that are helping sustain a population, but that might not be enough in the face of climate change. Mm. So it's amazing the kind of the distances that these fish are, you know, are meant to travel, would prefer to travel, the number of ecosystems they link. And I want to kind of circle back to the partnerships you mentioned at the very beginning. Um, I would imagine that in order to cover such a broad range and all these different habitats, you have to work with a, a pretty diverse group of partnerships. Um, who has come together and what roles are you playing? Well, um, the Winnowin Wintu tribe has um, has been there for eons uh, in the, on the McLeod River. It's a very small uh, tribe that's left, but they are they're very vocal, and they've worked with us to tell us about the oral history of the fish um, and and how their life and livelihood focused around the fish. So that's an important part of the, mm-hmm. the partnership. Uh, there are cultural resources in the area that we had to be sensitive of to set up our collection system. We have the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Um, they uh, came up with a $1.5 million grant to support the pilot study this year. We have National Marines F- Fishery Service um, uh, at the federal level who oversees uh, fisheries and salmon issues and, and, and management. We have the U.S. Forest Service who permit and uh, the land uh, in and around the the arm of uh, the McLeod River, and then we have the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation who manage the water in Shasta Dam. So all those partners have been sitting down for various times over the last 12 years. This project did not happen overnight. Wow. Um, it's it, it's been many steps, and along the way. Steps have been forward all the time. Even when we stalled with the pandemic, it actually brought an opportunity together to to share and spend more time talking and interacting with the Winnemuwintu tribe and finding out more about the oral history, where they stood on the collection system and how that impacted their cultural resources going forward. Um, so there was a lot to do and, and uh, the partnership is strong uh, and it, it it's 12 years in the making and it's going to sustain us in the future for for doing projects like this it'll be a model that we can use i believe in other reservoirs in california right uh, that was and, that was my uh, next question, oh, so I'm going to jump in. All right, and, and you I was going to ask questions. One from Mel or Mel. <laughs> That's Mel, right. So. All right. Um, so, can this be a model in other places? Are you already seeing interest in testing it out or using it in other locations? I, I believe I believe it can. Um, we we understand the partnership. We understand the work it takes to create that partnership and how that leads to in-water work and testing and how important it is to look at cultural resources, to look at um, um, Native Americans and how they see the system as well. So, uh, you know, in the past, it it may have been uh, not the way to go or or even not to listen to and work with a tribe Mm. uh, historically throughout the country. You know, we, we started doing that early and we believe that that has helped us understand the need, the cultural needs and the significance of a project like this. And as well as the, the permitting 
that we had to step through mm. to get this project going. We could do it in other reservoirs. There was a biological opinion in um, 2009 and then changed in 2012 that talked about doing it in two other watersheds in California besides Shasta watershed that included Folsom Lake and included uh, New Malones. So those areas have uh, spring run, steelhead, and other Chinook runs that could benefit from a system like this if it works. And and again, I find it fascinating that this project involves simply thermodynamics in many ways. It's cold water. Yes. It's not involving any types of other chemical attractants or other type of uh, process. Like bait or... Bait, yeah. yeah, that might that might be might have collateral or knock-on effects this is just cold water and so real quick how do you define success no you're not using fish in this go around it's it's more of like just studying the hydraulics and temperatures how does how do you define success in this first part of the project success uh to us in the first part of the project is is really to be honest with you, is getting that system deployed mm. and measuring temperature and see if we can hold that colder temperature above to attract fish. And we're seeing some early data, so we, we feel we can do that. Um, so right now there there is some success. And the fact that we the fact that we got that in the water, to be honest with you, is a huge success. Um, and and that's uh, a testament to the partnership and and the hard work that all of those entities put into this project and will continue to put into this project to be honest well the the creativity and the persistence are um, really inspiring and we'll be watching to see how this happens and definitely calling back to get an update yeah. uh, next year when we get hopefully some fish in this system yep. um, we have been speaking with Hugh Bigger and Mark Commandator from the California Division of Wildlife Services. Thank you oh, so much for joining us. Uh, yeah. Oh. I, uh, I just wanted to point out it's the California Department of Water Resources. But oh. Oh. Sorry. So, well, anyway, thank you. Thank you for that information. Sure. <laughs> we'll make a note in our summary uh, so yes. our listeners yeah. know. Thank you. And we'll thank you. Thank you, Mel. Thank you, Chris. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thank you. thank you. All right. We got to... Oh, we got one sponsor, right? Underwriter. And when we That's come right. back, we'll uh, wrap up. It's This Green Earth. You can email us your thoughts, your comments, and your ideas for future shows at thisgreenearth at kpcw.org. And we love to hear from you. We want to cover the stories that you want to hear.